Hello and welcome to this special edition IC Roundtable on the credit cycle. I'm Harriet Russell, the sector's editor of the magazine, and I'm joined by several colleagues today. We're first of all very excited to be joined by Nicole Elliott, otherwise known as the trader around these parts. Thank you very much, Nicole, for being part of this. It's great to have you on. We're also joined by Emma Powell, who is our banking and finance correspondent and the IC News editor as well. And Deputy Companies Editor Mark Robinson is with us as well to talk about these issues. Before we get everyone jumping in, we're going to go straight to an interview that I conducted yesterday with bond fund manager Chris Hyam at Aviva Investors on this very topic. Let's hear what he had to say. The flows of capital is really important in terms of understanding you know, what is driving a lot of the areas of credit growth or credit availability that you might be experiencing. So, you know, if we use the US and China as, as, as an example, then China continues to export capital and, uh, you know, the US continues to import it. And obviously, ahead of the financial crisis, then some of the consequences of that, you know, I'm not saying it's 100% feed through, but it did lead to, you know, ever increasing property prices in the US. You know, and ultimately, we can maybe come on to discuss what actually triggers some of these bubbles, if you like, actually bursting. But I think understanding a lot of the flows is, is really key. So, you know, a lot of these relationships that were in place before the financial crisis very much still are. In fact, global imbalances are as high today as they were before the financial crisis. And, you know, within the US market, whereas before the financial crisis, it was really about housing. You know, some of the areas where we've seen large credit growth in the last few years has been more on the auto loan side or the student loan side in particular, but also um, on, on some of the some of the consumer data. That's an interesting point that you mentioned there about the auto market. This is something that I cover in quite a lot of depth. And it's something, as you mentioned, that in the US, there's there's a certain amount of fear building about the sorts of people that have been getting themselves into um, PCP or sort of long, lengthy liability agreements on, on that front. I had a very interesting conversation with the CEO of a most retailer this morning who, albeit it's a British company, so maybe they're not sort of structured in maybe exactly the same way. But his point was that unlike the subprime market in the housing crisis almost a decade ago now, the difference is that the sorts of assets we're talking about in an auto situation are not nearly as life and death as housing. And when people default on a housing loan, it's not the same as defaulting on a car loan, because ultimately, you can just hand the car back. And yeah, I mean, it's inconvenient, but it's not losing your home. You know, it's definitely true that the auto, going back to the, the question, that the auto sector is a much smaller part of, a, of the economy than, than the housing market. Uh, I, th- I guess, well, uh, my concerns would still be that largely um, a lot of these capital flows are still finding their ways into what are really unproductive assets. Uh, now, whether that's housing or autos, you know, student loans might be a bit different, but you know, it's still very difficult to see where you might get a return on the capital that's being uh, largely invested in um, or, or, or spent in, in a lot of these sectors. I think, you know, from a in terms of these, you know, the global imbalances ultimately being sustainable, then we would you know, we'd much prefer uh, the money to be finding its way into uh, productive investment opportunities rather than what are largely idle assets. And what in your mind constitutes a productive asset compared to an unproductive one? Yeah, so I think it does depend to a great extent, but I think you know, in the US, for example, we would much prefer to see that money finding its way into infrastructure spending directly rather than into 
into auto loans. I mean, I think that's the the obvious example, and that's something that you know we would welcome to see what we would like to see rather than what is currently the case. And what about the UK? I mean, we talk a, a lot amongst our own team about the level of credit card borrowing, for instance. That's a very obvious example, but it's it's at an all time high. And if rates start to reverse, or if banks decide that they need to start curtailing the amount that they lend, I mean that might seriously start to spook people. Yeah, well, this year's like it's to be pretty challenging. I mean, well, on the interest rate side, I mean, we think, you know, post-election, well, and we have thought post the crisis, you know, a lot of those secular drivers, you know, debt, demographics, inequality, they're likely to mean that interest rates stay low for still a very significant period of time. You know, our view on that hasn't hasn't changed. You know, if anything, it's, it's stronger than it ever has been. The fiscal side of things is is very important, as, as you know, to your previous question, and there's, there's a lot of uncertainty there. I think on the consumer data, it does depend how you cut and slice the data. So I think you know one of the big mistakes, both post pre uh, crisis, is, is really uh, looking at a lot of data at, at an aggregate level. Um, so again, you know, if you look at Europe at an aggregate level, then actually it looks it looks really good. But it's only when you really drill into that that. Obviously, you see that there's lots of countries that are, well, some countries have gone through a depression and others have actually done okay. For the UK consumer, you know, last year offered them some relief in terms of, you know, wage growth and and a reduction in inflation. This year is likely to be more challenging, but we do think, you know, that inflationary uh, pressure is likely to be to be transitory. Um, So this year, you know, should be tough with inflation outstripping wage growth so you know negative uh, real incomes but we do think that is likely to be transitory and, and things will improve um so again you know again there have been some policies that are aimed at addressing this you know, obviously the the living wage being the main one to help reduce um a lot of the inequality and to you know help alleviate a lot of that you know the concerns about uh, credit at the bottom end and indeed there's been lots of regulations re- regarding you know uh, you know the rates that um, you know a lot of these companies are able to to charge. So I think you know largely a lot of these policies have been moving us in the right direction. Um, you could say they've not done enough, or they've not not quickly not happened quickly enough. But we we do still have more sort of steps to to come through on some of them. So I think there are some signs of of um, optimism. But you know I'd certainly agree that we'd I'd like to see some more. <laughs> Okay, so Chris highlighted uh, a number of issues with me yesterday. The first one that he really sort of spent some time on was the relationship between US and China. We were trying to really delve into the idea of what conditions were the same in the run-up to the 2008 credit crunch um, and whether we can expect to see the same pattern this time around. What was interesting, though, was reading around that subject last night. A lot of the commentary I've come up against, and Mark, this is maybe something that you know quite a lot about, we've discussed China to a fair degree, is that the Chinese economy, obviously, it's still a huge buyer of American debt, but it's it itself is looking more vulnerable these days. It's moving from a manufacturing-based economy into a consumer-driven economy, and that has brought a number of interesting challenges with it. What, what are your feelings on the Chinese economy these days? Well, one of the structural problems that administrators in China uh, is faced with is uh, a lack of uh, paper assets. And so this makes it very difficult for uh, Chinese households, Chinese consumers to actually um, store their wealth. And as a result of this, you've had um, at least two spikes in the uh, residential uh, property market there, 
where um, where people have just been buying uh, property as a way to um, uh, maintain uh, their long-term wealth or to store their long-term wealth. And um, there, there are some amazing statistics on that as well. I mean, I was reading um, that the housing sales rose 60% in the first quarter of this year, up to $248 billion. That's, that's from the National Bureau of Statistics. That's a fairly reliable figure as well. Well, that's right. And I mean, that, that type of pattern is um, replicated uh, throughout Southeast Asia and in Australia and London as well. I believe that uh, Chinese buyers constitute the uh, largest overseas grouping in, in Australia. And it wouldn't be that far off in the United Kingdom, certainly in London at the moment as well. So again, it comes down to this structural problem of where do you store your wealth in China because of the lack of uh, paper assets. It's uh, a fundamental flaw of the economy. Uh, and of course, uh, the Chinese central government, along with uh, other uh, emerging economies, um, most notably Russia, have been trying to reduce the the global influence of the US dollar as well. And so, but unfortunately, they're in something of a um, uh, dance macabre here because they hold so much US denominated debt uh, that they can't sort of release this into world markets uh, in, a rapid, in a rapid manner. I guess uh, if we move a, a little closer to home as well, I think in the magazine we've been highlighting, uh, at least for the last 18 months, uh, the approaching high point of um, the UK uh, credit cycle. And we've just got some uh, recent uh, statistical evidence from, uh, of all people, the uh, TUC, the TUC uh, commissioned uh, research into household debt in the UK. And they found that unsecured debt per household was just over £13,000, £13,200 uh, throughout last year. And it should go up marginally this this year but the interesting part about it is that last year's figure, unadjusted, was just below the peak uh, of 13,300, which was achieved in 2007. Of course, we know that the timing there is uh, significant. The worst of it is that the TUC research expects the uh, that indebtedness to rise up to about 15,400 by the end of uh, 2021. But at the same time we're seeing that, we're seeing a, a, a spike in unsecured lending defaults in the United Kingdom now as well. Now, if you contrast this with the experience in the United States, I mean, the, our economies are slightly out of alignment, and you look at the, the general economic conditions in the US, and there's robust employment, um, unemployment hit a 16-year low recently, and stocks uh, have reached an all-time high. But what's very curious is that Americans have suddenly stopped paying off their credit card bills uh, at a rapid rate. In the past two fiscal quarters, banks reported a steep rise in credit card charge-offs, is a term, which basically means debt that companies can't collect from their customers. Uh, and that's according to Moody's research. And now that we're actually um, getting this pattern starting to emerge in the UK, although uh, we'd have to wait for another couple of quarters to see if that's uh, that firmly established. Yeah, I mean, Emma, we could probably bring you in at this point because obviously you've been covering a number of these banks through the latest results season in March. And I know that we have talked about this emerging trend that they're really trying to start to curtail, let's say, rather than move away from personal lending. They see it as a bit of a danger zone. Is that right? It's more actually the unsecured personal lending. So I know there's been banks like Challenger Bank Secure Trust, which, for instance, said they wanted to stop writing new um, loans in that area just because they thought with the kind of rapid rise of unsecured personal lending in the past few years, 
that actually people uh, weren't writing risk at an appropriate level. So to even stand a chance against the competition, there's kind of this drive downwards and they just thought it's too risky. We can't write it at an appropriate risk. So we're getting out of it, not permanently, but just for now. I mean, that's interesting because one of the points that Chris brought up on that interview was that actually if the if the 2008 crash had given us anything positive, it had given us a tighter regulatory environment, not just sort of at the high corporate level, but also at the personal level. Obviously, that was a subprime disaster in 2008. It was very much at the personal level. Is that something that you still feel is true? I mean, there's been an awful lot of focus on tr- stress tests and, and all of that sort of area since since the crash so could they not try and extend that further into unsecured personal lending i mean they could yeah and there's something like um you know the the fca at the moment which i'm sure you'll come on to later is looking at uh, motor finance as the next kind of area of um of consumer credit and and looking at whether that that's been written appropriately at a level that is um, kind of stringent enough but yeah it's probably unlikely that we'll get another you know that mortgages will be the next thing to go but i think the kind of a lot of the regulatory tightening was done around obviously the the mortgage market and i think maybe unsecured personal lending hasn't been as tight the standards around that but it's inevitable now especially with the fca in the uk are looking more and more at credit card debt but also like i mentioned before motor finance and just lots of different areas of consumer credit yeah credit cards are sort of one of those things that are sort of indicative of consumer spending which is which is a huge issue this year not just in the face of where the credit cycle is at but also where we are in terms of inflation we had data today that inflation is at a four-year peak and I suppose people have been taking advantage of those credit cards at historically low rates. Now on that interview you will have heard that Chris said that he expects rates to continue to be low for the foreseeable future and so in that way consumers appetite inflation aside should hopefully still be high to keep borrowing at those low rates but I suppose Mark what what, what do you think would be their undoing if, if credit cards were really to sort of start a downward trend in the cycle what what would have to change well i i would agree with chris's point anyway in relation to interest rates because it, it seems very doubtful uh, or it's hard to imagine the circumstances under which the, the bank of england uh, would, would be in a position or would be willing to start uh, ratcheting up uh, uh, the base rate because so many people uh, so many consumers in our households are sailing close to the wind uh, again that tuc report i mentioned earlier on highlighted the fact that uh, an increasing number of households are actually using their credit cards and payday lenders uh, to just fund their uh, weekly expenses, uh, which is worrying enough in itself. And it's interesting the point that uh, Emma made as well uh, in relation to car finance, because, again, that mirrors the experience that we've uh, had across the Atlantic, because there was two major spikes at the, towards the end of last year in uh, defaults on UK finan- uh, car finance, or US car finance, rather. And so um, uh, UK administrators are obviously taking a look at uh, that. Uh, one of the areas, if I just go back to the, the, the US again, because, as I say, I, I tend to think that we're, we're perhaps lagging uh, the US cycle somewhat. Um, and it's interesting to note that uh, loan originations, this is uh, figures from the Federal Reserve there, uh, totaled uh, just under $2.14 billion in the first quarter of uh, 2017. I think these are uh, unsecured loans again. That was actually a 4% uh, increase versus the fourth quarter of last year. But actually, when you compare it to Q1 in 2016, 
the decline is around 44%. So that shows a, a clear um, fall away in, uh, in appetite for, for risk. Nicole, let's let's bring you in because obviously this is um, a discussion of subprime and what's interesting is that the discussion has really moved away from mortgages and towards the car market in recent months and, and particularly in the US where we are seeing this. Um, I'm just going to throw out some statistics for you though. We can, we can talk about what's happening in the US but I suppose the important thing is to what extent is there a read across for the UK. And uh, anyway, in, in 2016, British households borrowed a record 31 6 billion to buy cars, which was up 12% on the year before. And nine out of 10 of those private car buyers are now using personal contract plans, PCPs, uh, which have boomed as a result of the historically low interest rates that, that we've already mentioned. And new cars, we've we've said they've been at an absolute peak. There's been a lot of data from the SMMT around that's going to come off. But I suppose if there is any read across at all, from looking at the US, what are we in for? Globally, everybody is drowning in debt. And what's actually happened over the last few months is that the credit creation, and that includes state, corporate and personal, has actually started to drop quite quickly. The bulk of this is actually in China. I mean, everything in China is bigger and better than everywhere else. So you'll see that global credit creation is actually starting not to fall off a cliff, but it's really beginning to implode. As to whether this will impact the car industry or the corporate market or the bond market or whatever, I don't know exactly. But certainly, many of us have become used to these incredibly low interest rates and we can only afford certain things that we want to do so long as the rates stay super, super low. Um, A report recently in the UK suggested that a small interest rate rise here would immediately send 80,000 small businesses to the wall. So that's the problem that we we're, we're doing uh, the maths, the formula that we're using. That you know, it's, it's, there's no room for, for error. No, no, no room for error. Something we've talked about as well today is that we're still unraveling an awful lot of what happened in 2008. And if we were to have Emma, for example, a European banking crisis, Nicole and I really came to the conclusion that we don't really have the time, the resources, or frankly, the money to survive another one. So you've got threats, albeit smaller in themselves. But if they all go to doom at once, I mean, that's that's when the bedlam will, will be on the same scale, won't it? Well, I'd say um, the, the, the big problem here is the under-reporting of, of bad and sour delinquent debt. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I don't know where these authorities are, are, are getting their data from. But the fact that there's been massive um, lying about just exactly how many loans on your books are dodgy. Well, we saw that now with Popular in the space of a week. The thing goes, gone. Um, uh, the Italian ones, well, they groan on, don't they? And... I tell you, there are a lot more than three banks in this situation and they're not limited to Mediterranean countries either. And it's all over the shop, all over the shop. So until we've got some proper people to look over, cast their fingers over the books and do some decent stress testing, everybody's at risk because the whole thing is interconnected. One quote that I read in a Guardian article on this issue earlier this month was, was kind of interesting because it said some of the car leasing loans in the US and the UK have been packaged into asset-backed securities to be sold on to investors such as pension funds. Does that sound at all familiar? 
Well, it, it's absolutely true, and it's it's the 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 other side of the quest for yield. It's the same thing, yeah. If you're a pension fund and you've got to pay out X amount of, of, of pensioners, and interest rates are zero, you're pushing yourself into these riskier things. And as you can't originate the loans yourself, you're going to buy them off somebody else. Yeah, I mean, what's also interesting is that people who are on the defence on this, um, which include, obviously, um, fund managers themselves, even car motor retailers themselves, um, they're pointing out two things. Adrian Daly was quoted in this article. Um, He's head of motor finance at the FLA, and he was saying that Britain had been highly disciplined with little evidence of loans to subprime borrowers and that the UK was absolutely a world leader in the quality of underwriting and minimising risk. He also pointed out that car loans in Britain are actually a small fraction of the one trillion in mortgage debt and that's a similar sort of metric in the US as well it's a very small proportion um, compared to mortgage debt and so I suppose the question then is really to what extent does this have the ability to unravel the economy in the same way as mortgages did in 2008? I'd actually look at student loans before I worried about the cars. Yeah I I mean this is something else that Chris has pointed out in the interview. I'd say the student loans is the bigger issue at the moment here and in the US uh, than the car loans. Yeah, and I think Chris's point in that interview is also that it's really his opinion, although I'm sure he's not alone, that although capital flows are are fairly good into the US, they're going into the wrong assets. And this was something that was cited in this article as well by a fund manager, Andrew Evans at Schroeder's, who said borrowing is a very bad idea when it is done against a depreciating asset such as a car. Is that something that you'd believe in as well? I think it's called cash for clunkers in the States, <laughs> Harriet. Yes, you drive it out of the showroom and you've lost 10% mm. uh, before we even start talking. Now, everybody needs a little bit of fun in their life, don't they? And when you, when everything looks grim around the place and some, somebody suggests you could buy a really snazzy, cool car and, and show off with your mates, uh, it's tempting, isn't it? And I totally understand why people do that sort mm. of thing. It's not an asset. It's just a, a toy. Yeah, and I suppose that's the danger. There's another school of thought that says, well, if you go bad on your car payments and and you can't afford them month to month, well, then you just hand the asset back. It's not as life and death as a mortgage where suddenly you're homeless or or faced with a property sale that you can't make or etc, etc. However, Nicole and I were talking this morning about the fact that if you do that, of course, the the depreciation on that asset is massive and the resale values are going to go absolutely through the floor. And before you know it, you're really in a bit of a negative equity situation, not unlike what you would see on a house, right? Well, that's it, because these new the, the reason these cars have become so affordable, tempting people to buy a snazzier model or whatever, is that instead of being a conventional repayment loan, think of it as an interest-only loan. So you've agreed, you've signed a three-year deal usually, you've agreed that, it, and the financing with these low interest rates is very much lower than what it would have been five years ago. I mean, to give you some idea in the States, current financing for these schemes is running at about half the monthly repayments than it would have been on a conventional scheme. So it's a whopping great big difference. But after the three years, then what you do, they value the car at its second-hand value. And the lower the value there, the more you owe the leasing company. Yeah. So you, you're not walking off scot-free at all. Um, I don't actually know enough about this in the States, but certainly in many countries, you can give the asset back, but you still remain 
in debt to the finance company. And so that is a real noose around your neck. So it's it's definitely worth reading the fine print. Mm. And also, I think something we talked about was what is that really indicative of if people are defaulting on something that has been made really quite affordable if it if it's because they're i think you used the phrase earlier today nicole maxed out and they really think that something has to give what is it reflective of is it reflective of the fact that maybe their wages have stagnated or maybe they've lost their job entirely and maybe that is the systemic issue that's actually going to unravel this as mark i think mentioned at the beginning of this podcast as long as rates stay low employment stays good there are all these sort of macro pro factors which have to stay in one particular equilibrium and sort of everything is manageable on that basis. I think, Mark, you said this in a piece earlier this year as well. You said, ultimately, something's got to give. What do you think will? Well, I think um, Nicole's point earlier on in, in, in the US, uh, the, the real danger is the size of the uh, the student loan market there. I, I think administrators have looked at uh, car, uh, car finance across the Atlantic. And while it certainly uh, represents a, a problem as far as the individual goes and the, uh, the loan originator, because they're not always large companies in themselves, uh, so their level of exposure is higher. Uh, I think from a s- systemic point of view, the size of the student loan market could be the next trigger point. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.